Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Chronic pain is a worldwide epidemic. In the United States alone, the Institute of Medicine estimates that chronic pain, including low back and neck pain, afflicts one in three Americans. In the search for a new therapy to treat refractory chronic pain, ketamine has reemerged at sub-anesthetic concentrations for its use in analgesia. Although ketamine exerts its analgesic effects through a myriad of pathways, its primary mechanism lies in the antagonism of NMDA receptors in the central nervous system. Today, one of Mayo Clinic's ambulatory care pharmacists, Dr. Danielle Hess, reviews the available evidence and evaluates how special ketamine is in the story of chronic pain management. Chronic pain is a worldwide epidemic. Among the reasons for years lost to disability, chronic pain remains among the top in the United States. Additionally, the Institute of Medicine has estimated that chronic pain afflicts one in three Americans. In the search for new therapies for the treatment of refractory chronic pain, ketamine has reemerged at sub-anesthetic doses for its use in analgesia. Although the analgesic effects of ketamine are through a wide variety of pathways, its main mechanism lies in its antagonism of NMDA receptors in the central nervous system. Therefore, as we dive into the literature for ketamine use and chronic pain management, we will evaluate whether this antagonist plays a special role in the story of chronic pain. For our objectives today, we will first start off by describing the mechanism of action for ketamine as it relates to analgesia. Second, we will look at the literature available for ketamine use in chronic pain management. And finally, we will look at the consensus guidelines and what the available evidence is telling us for patient scenarios, types of pain, and safety precautions to keep in mind with ketamine use. In 1970, ketamine was FDA approved as a general anesthetic agent. And although not FDA approved, ketamine has now reemerged for other indications such as chronic pain. Its primary mechanism lies in NMDA receptor antagonism. However, there are another of, a number of pathways and ketamine is often regarded as one of pharmacology's most complex due to the multiple binding sites throughout the body. Therefore, let's start with looking at the NMDA receptor transmission. Here on the left, you can see a normal NMDA receptor. And at the top on the presynaptic side of the receptor, we have glutamate binding along with glycine or D-serine. Here with this binding, that is going to cause a depolarization. With that, we have displacement of the magnesium from the PCP or phenylcyclidine site within that NMDA receptor. Now, there is influx of calcium into the cell. Well, what does that mean for the cell? With that influx in intracellular calcium, there is activation of neuronal nitric oxide synthase, and then an increase in our cyclic guanosine monophosphate, finally leading to central transmission of pain messages. 
So overall here, we see this excitatory stimulation by glutamate leading to pain messages in the central nervous system. On the other hand, what happens if we use ketamine to inhibit this mechanism? So here on the right, we'll take a look at ketamine being placed or administered. So instead of the magnesium being displaced, once there is glutamate um, binding, we have ketamine binding to that PCP site. And therefore, calcium cannot enter the cell. When calcium cannot enter the cell, we are then theoretically blocking those transmissions of pain messages to the brain. And it's actually been shown that this antagonism may be more important if the NMDA channel has been previously opened by glutamate fixation, meaning that this may be more important if the pain is significant or chronic in nature. And as I mentioned, ketamine has multiple different binding sites throughout the body. So in addition to its NMDA receptor antagonism, we see that there is a high affinity for dopamine D2 receptors. However, this is just a third of that of the NMDA. Additionally, on the other hand, serotonin does have equal NM affinity as NMDA. And it's actually been shown in studies that if serotonin antagonists, such as methysergide, is administered at the same time as ketamine, it antagonizes ketamine's analgesic effects. Therefore, this suggests that serotonergic pathways are involved in the analgesic effects of ketamine. We also see that there is affinity for opioid receptors, the most being mu, then kappa, and finally delta. However, this is tenfold less than that of the NMDA affinity. And in studies in which they administered naloxone on top of ketamine, they found that the analgesic effects were not reversed by administration. Therefore, it is thought to be a very small portion of the analgesic effect of ketamine, if any. And finally, we also have affinity for muscarinic receptors. However, this is 10 to 20 fold less than that of NMDA affinity. And this likely more so plays a role with the peripheral side effects that we see with ketamine, such as an increase in sympathetic tone, dilating the pupils and bronchodilation. Now that we have an understanding of the mechanism of action of ketamine, I'd like to go through some of its pharmacokinetic parameters. So as you can see, ketamine is a very versatile drug. It doesn't just come in one formulation. It's ranging from IV therapy all the way down to topical. And of note, ketamine is also lipid and water soluble. That means it's going to rapidly distribute throughout the body, and it can also rapidly cross the blood-brain barrier. So taking a look at some of these PK parameters, we see for bioavailability, 100% for IV, all the way down to less than 5% for our topical administration. As in terms of time of onset, our fastest is going to be with IV and our slowest with topical. And for the duration of action, that is going to be the, the smallest or shortest amount of time with IV, all the way up to the longest potentially with oral or topical. And within the available evidence, it does focus on IV administration of ketamine. Therefore, for the rest of this presentation, we will focus on the IV formulation. And that brings us to our first assessment question. So you can go ahead, as Garrett mentioned, and text MAYO RX to 22333, or go on to pollev.com slash MAYO RX and cast your vote.
So the first question is, which of the following describe the primary mechanism of action for ketamine's analgesic effects? And I'll give you time to cast your votes. All right, so I definitely agree with 100% of your votes here. Um, blockade of NMDA receptors disrupting the normal excitatory glutamate signaling in the CNS. So we saw that when that glutamate stimulation is blocked, then it's blocking that pain signaling going to the brain. To go through the other answers, First, promotion of serotonin reuptake via 5-HT2 binding site. Yes, the serotonergic pathways are involved, but it's rather inhibiting that reuptake instead of promoting it. B, high affinity for mu opioid receptor binding in the CNS and periphery. Um, ketamine does bind to the mu opioid receptors, but this is not seen to play a large role in its analgesic effects, if any. And finally, the muscarinic antagonism, D, leading to less pain. The muscarinic um, receptors are more involved with the peripheral side effects of ketamine rather than its analgesic effects. So before we dive into the available literature for chronic pain management with IV ketamine, I'd like to discuss a number of the types of chronic pain that are within this available evidence. And all of these types of pain kind of stem from or circle around the general concept of central sensitization. Last month, there was actually a video updated by the clinical director for the pain rehab program at our Jacksonville, Florida campus. And he did an excellent job at describing this concept of central sensitization. He starts in the video by describing sensory processing. So we have sensory processing in our skin, in our GI tract, our bones, our joints, our muscles, et cetera. And that sensory processing can stem from an injury. It could start from a progressive disease. It could also start seemingly out of nowhere. So he then goes into talking a little bit about neuromodulation. So if I take this pen and I tap it on the back of my hand, I feel that sensation. And when that tapping stops, that sensation should also stop. But it is possible for those nerves or neurons to be stimulated to such a degree that that sensation and those signalings do not stop. And there's actually an upregulation of those signals to the sensory cortex in our brain, telling us that there is pain or a sensation there. So that is the kind of the central sensitization phrase or stem of a lot of these types of chronic pain. He also gives a great analogy that we can think of of a fire detector in this room. So normally there's a number or a degree of smoke that's going to set off that fire alarm. But in central sensitization, we can think of someone lighting a candle in the other room and that fire alarm still going off. So it's very sensitive, but the specificity decreases and then we can have false positives. So to go through a little bit more in depth with these types of pain, we'll start with neuropathic pain. This is a pain caused by a lesion or disease of the somatosensory nervous system. For nociceptive pain, this is pain from actual or threatened damage to non-neuronal tissue due to activation of the nociceptors. Nosoblastic pain is defined as altered nociception despite no clear evidence of actual tissue damage. So kind of that where it's seemingly out of nowhere. 
Complex regional pain syndrome is with excess or prolonged pain and inflammation that follows an injury to one of the extremities. And within central or complex regional pain syndrome, there are two different types, so type one and type two. And both of these have pretty similar symptoms, but what distinguishes the two types is there is an actual major peripheral nerve injury in type two. And finally, fibromyalgia is a widespread musculoskeletal pain that is associated with fatigue, sleep, memory, and mood issues. So please keep these definitions in mind as we go through the available evidence for ketamine use in these types of pain. Over the last two decades, there has been a dramatic increase in the use of IV ketamine as treatment for chronic pain. That led to a lot of providers and the healthcare system questioning, what dose should I use? What types of pain can I use this in? When would it be appropriate for my given patients? Therefore, there was a call for consensus guidelines. And in 2016, this charge was accepted by the board of directors for consensus development by the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, and then shortly thereafter by the second organization, the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Once these board of directors set individuals within the committees to design the consensus guidelines and dig through all of the available evidence, this document was shared with a third organization. And the completed document was sent to the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committees on Pain Medicine and Standards and Practice Parameters. Finally, in 2018, we had the publishing of the consensus guidelines for IV ketamine for chronic pain. Overall, the individuals involved in these consensus guidelines realized that there is truly a surge in use, a lack of large scale and methodologically sound studies and absence of treatment standards. Therefore, that is why they ended up accepting this charge and need to inform safe practice for ketamine use. So within looking at all of the available evidence with IV ketamine, the authors of these consensus guidelines narrowed it down and included this table of randomized control studies that looked at IV ketamine use for at least 48 hours after that ketamine infusion was stopped so that they had some type of follow-up to see if the pain scores were truly different afterwards. This eliminated it down to just seven randomized control studies. And I'm not going to go through each of these studies in depth, but rather I'd like to highlight some of the differences and nuances between these studies. So if we take a look at the first, or sorry, the second column here, you can see that the number of patients in these studies are very small. So we're ranging from about 19 patients up to a max of about 60 patients. Additionally, the type of pain, again, is within that chronic disease state or um, is related to that central sensitization but it's also differing between. So we have neuropathic pain, phantom limb pain, some of the complex regional pain syndrome types, fibromyalgia, cancer pain, and ischemic limb pain. For the intervention, you can also see that the ketamine dosing was not consistent between any of these studies. They each had their own regimen to follow, and some of them also had a number of conventional therapies that were continued during the study. So here you can see at the top, 
80 milligrams over five hours for a week straight, all the way down to the bottom with just one dose, 0.5 megs per kg over 30 minutes. So a wide range of dosing between these seven available randomized control studies. Additionally, with the pain assessments, most of them looked at baseline pain, but then the follow-up time periods were very different. Some did it during the infusion, some waited until after, and then some continued all the way up to a 12-week follow-up period, but all had that at least 48-hour follow-up. And finally, with results, you can see that ketamine was deemed to be better than placebo in all of these studies, except for the Salas and colleagues study for cancer pain. There was no difference between the two treatment groups. Um, looking at the details of the results, though, these were very variable. So we can see in the first study, it was better than placebo for up to two weeks. But lower, we can see in the NOPERS and colleagues study, this was only better or significantly better than placebo at 15 minutes past the infusion. So a very wide range, all the way up to significant beyond 11 weeks um, with our Stigermans and colleagues kind of in the middle of the table there. So overall, you can see that there's a lot of limitations to this data, and it's hard to make consensus guidelines off of things that are so variable. So we have a lot of confounding factors, such as the first study, including gabapentin. The placebo group did as well, but none of the other studies included gabapentin. Some continued opioids. Some gave clonidine and midazolam to try to help with ketamine's analgesic effects or block some of those peripheral side effects of ketamine. So those are all things we want to keep in mind for limitations of this data. From these randomized control studies and the other studies they looked at, they tried to come up with consensus guidelines first for different pain indications. So here you will see for complex regional pain syndrome, they rated it as having moderate evidence to support improvement for up to 12 weeks. And if you look at our blue shape here, it says that that rating or recommendation is grade B. And this translates to recommending ketamine therapy in these patients if deemed appropriate by the provider. Next, spinal cord injuries were found to have weak evidence to support short-term improvement. And grade C then translates to the intervention should be offered or provided to select patients depending on individual circumstances. And finally, you will see that other pain conditions such as our neuropathy, fibromyalgia, cancer pain, ischemic pain, headache, and spinal pain all had weak evidence or no evidence for immediate improvement. And that was graded with D, which translates to discouraging the use of ketamine therapy in these patients. In addition to indications, they created consensus guidelines for dosing, as that is one of the big questions if you are going to start this for one of your patients. They recommend using a bolus up to 0.35 milligrams per kilogram if you go the bolus route instead of infusions. For infusions, the dosing is recommended to be 0.5 to 2 megs per kg per hour, but they do note that doses up to 7 megs per kg per hour have been successfully used in refractory cases in the ICU setting. Finally, 
They also mention that there is evidence for a dose response relationship, meaning that higher doses may provide more benefit for patients. And they recommend total dosages of at least 80 milligrams over a period of two or more hours. Within these dosing consensus guidelines, they also provide this graph here. So you can see on the y-axis, this is duration of analgesic benefit in days. And on the x-axis, we have total ketamine dose in milligrams. And each of these dots represents one of those seven randomized control studies. And from this, the consensus guidelines state that there is moderate evidence to support higher doses of ketamine over longer time periods and more frequent administration for chronic pain. Here though, we see that this is really kind of based off of just two of these studies that had accumulation of 1,000 or 3,000, and this held up to about 80 days in analgesic benefit. And this brings us to our second assessment question. So here's a case for you first. A 54-year-old female with chronic pain presents to her primary care provider. She has trialed deluxetine, gabapentin, opioids, NSAIDs, acupuncture, massage therapy, a lot of things that we hear about, and numerous other treatments for chronic pain over the last five years. She inquires about ketamine and asks which type of pain has the strongest guideline recommendation for its use. So here, A, fibromyalgia, B, CRPS, C, spinal cord injury, or D, diabetic neuropathy. All right, and yes, B is the correct answer. CRPS had moderate evidence for its use. And Looking at fibromyalgia and diabetic neuropathy, this was the group in which there was weak to no evidence, and spinal cord injury had weak evidence for the immediate relief after using ketamine. So what has happened since these consensus guidelines? We have seen now that there is a meta-analysis and systematic review that was published for randomized controlled trials of ketamine used for chronic pain management. And this was in 2019. So the consensus guidelines provided this framework for the systematic review, but their conclusions were based on subjective evaluation of the available evidence without effect size estimation or examination of relevant subgroup comparisons. This is what led to that systematic review and meta-analysis. And this is what we will dive into next. So the systematic review and meta-analysis outlined three main objectives for their study. They first wanted to quantify the magnitude of analgesic effect of ketamine infusions and determine a response rate. They next wanted to quantify the rate and types of adverse effects present. And finally, they wanted to identify which pain conditions or patients were most likely to respond to this treatment with ketamine and whether there truly is a dose response relationship like the guidelines suggested. With over about 700 different papers that met this potential um, ketamine use in chronic pain, they had to narrow this down to a number of different criteria. So first they looked at study type and chose only randomized control trials comparing the effect of IV ketamine to placebo for chronic pain. 
Next, looking up at the follow-up period, very similar to the consensus guidelines, there had to be at least a period of 48 hours or more after stopping that ketamine infusion. Patients could be involved if they were 18 years or older, and chronic pain had to be present for at least three months and rated moderate or severe. For the intervention or comparators, IV ketamine, which could be bolus and or infusions, with comparators of placebo with or without conventional medical management. And the authors of this meta-analysis mentioned that they allowed the conventional medical management because in the real world setting, if someone is dealing with chronic severe pain, we're likely not going to rip all of that management off and trial ketamine. Instead, this is kind of an adjunct agent that they were adding on in some of these studies. And finally, the primary outcome for this meta-analysis and systematic review was the lowest pain score recorded at least 48 hours after stopping the infusion and expressed on a scale of zero to 10. So this table may look very familiar to you because this was the exact amount of studies included in the consensus guidelines. So these seven randomized control studies were actually the same ones to be found for the meta-analysis. And they conducted a meta-analysis of 211 patients, 108 being in the ketamine group and 103 in the comparator groups. They first wanted to look at risk of bias among these studies. So here you can see all of the seven studies outlined and they looked at things such as selection bias, performance, detection, and continuously all the way up to overall bias. So here our green circles represent a low bias for selection, performance, attrition, reporting, et cetera. However, these red circles were deemed to be a high risk of this particular type of bias. And finally, the blank squares were unclear risk within these studies. So if we first take a look here at the overall bias, you can see that four of these seven studies were deemed to be at a high risk of bias. And if we look up higher in this figure, we see that all four of those studies did have a high risk at blinding participants and personnel. And this is because they really didn't define how they did the blinding procedure. And you can see two of the studies did um, have a low risk of bias with blinding. And this was because they actually assessed their blinding procedures. And when they did that, majority of the patients in the ketamine groups were actually able to guess that they had received the ketamine therapy. So therefore it suggested that the other studies likely did not have efficient binding or blinding procedures. And this brings us to the primary outcome of the meta-analysis, looking at the lowest pain score um, within 48 hours after stopping the ketamine infusion. And here you'll see only six of the studies were included out of the seven, and the one with cancer pain was not included because they didn't report the variance. So they weren't able to um, compare this to the other six studies for the primary outcome. And here under ketamine and placebo, you can see that they're measuring the mean pain score. And I'd just like to highlight that this is after the ketamine infusion or after placebo. So in this, you may look at it as a limitation, but we're not really looking at the pre-score and what it was after ketamine or pre-score before placebo and then afterwards to see if there was a big difference there. But instead, we're just comparing ketamine and placebo after these therapies. 
but overall, there was a statistically significant reduction in pain scores favoring ketamine over standard or controlled comparative treatments. So next, the authors looked at some of these subgroups that they outlined at the beginning of their study. They wanted to know if there is a dose response. Does there need to be a higher dose compared to a lower dose to see this significant benefit? And here, the authors of this meta-analysis assumed a 70 kilogram patient multiplied it by the infusion rate and then the duration of time and found that a high dose was defined as 400 milligrams cumulative dose and low dose was defined 400 milligrams or less. So here for the high dose group, meta-analysis demonstrated a significant reduction in pain scores with ketamine versus the control groups. On the other hand, with low dose, we also saw that there was a significant difference. And looking at meta-regression, there was no significant difference between the high group and the low dose group, showing that both of these had a significant difference in the pain scores after ketamine therapy. Next, they looked at the different types of pain. So we saw lots of different types of chronic pain. Does it matter which type we're treating to have that significant reduction in pain scores? So they first divided it as nociceptive or nociblastic pain groups. And here they saw that it did have a significant reduction in pain scores with IV ketamine. Now for neuro neuropathic or mixed pain groups, we also saw that there was a significant reduction in pain scores. And meta-regression showed that there's no significant difference between these two groups. Next, they looked at adjunct medications. So does it matter if they had the opioids on board or other therapies in addition to ketamine? First, they looked at ketamine alone, and this was three of the studies with pooled data. And the meta-analysis revealed a significant reduction in pain scores. Additionally, we saw the same thing for the studies that looked at ketamine as an adjunct therapy. So again, a significant reduction. And meta-regression showed no significant difference between these groups. They also wanted to look at different time periods. So as I mentioned at the beginning, they were looking at many different time periods, some for a very short period of time, like 48 hours, all the way up to 12 weeks of time. So here, pain score at two weeks, three studies fell within that, those time periods, and they found a significant reduction in pain scores. Now, pain scores at four weeks is the first time we see there is no significant pain re reduction um, with IV ketamine. So right now, it's really just at that two-week mark that we have significant evidence for, or statistically significant. Now, looking at week eight, again, there was no significant reduction that was maintained up to week eight in these three studies. Looking at week 12, there were two studies that continued for this time period and no significant reduction. So overall, out of these four time points, we really see that if ketamine is going to provide a benefit, it may only be for two weeks with the evidence that we have right now. They also wanted to look at positive response. So some of the studies define positive response as having a 50% or more reduction in pain. Another one of the studies looked at 30% reduction in pain. 
So three of these studies were involved in this subgroup analysis, and they found that meta-analysis demonstrated analgesic superiority for IV ketamine, meaning that with these definitions of a positive response, ketamine was superior to just placebo alone. So after all of these clinical outcomes and time periods that they were looking at, they also wanted to define adverse effects that were present with ketamine use. They found that nausea was significantly higher compared to the placebo group, along with the psychotomimetic effects having a significantly higher relative risk compared to placebo groups. However, in terms of headache or tiredness, there was no significant relative risk. Now, there's a number of considerations to take um, with this systematic review and meta-analysis. First, there was a diverse range of pain scales. So this makes it a little bit difficult to extract that raw data and compare them to each other. Next, the conclusions were on maximum pain relief at, of six small studies. And this mean sample size was only 24 participants. Additionally, heterogeneity in time periods was present and used for analgesic assessment. And this posed a challenge in evaluating the duration of benefit. Although not significant, the magnitude of reduction in pain scores was also greater among complex regional pain syndrome subgroups. So we saw from the consensus guidelines that they deemed CRPS to have moderate evidence. And this was also kind of a trend in the meta-analysis, although as they mentioned, not significant. IV ketamine had significantly higher incidence of nausea and vomiting like we saw in the previous slide, but they also noted that data was not sufficient to determine a cause-effect relationship between that adverse effect and discontinuation of ketamine. And finally, as I mentioned on the bias slide, 83% of participants allocated to ketamine correctly guessed their treatment in the two studies in which blinding was assessed. So these are all limitations that we have to keep in consideration with the consensus guidelines and again with the meta-analysis, even though the data was now pooled for us to have a better look at some of these effects. So overall, they had three recommendations from their meta-analysis. Use of IV ketamine can be used on a case-by-case -case basis as a primary analgesic in patients with chronic pain that are refractory to the more conventional treatments. Second, reductions in pain scores were observed with a wide range of dosages, but the more robust analgesic effects were observed, observed with higher dosages. And finally, they mentioned that further research should seek to determine ideal patients and conditions for treatment optimal dosing because we saw such a variety, impact on physical and physiological function, and the long-term adverse effects. And that brings us to our last assessment question for today. There's a 45-year-old male presenting to the clinic for chronic pain management. He has struggled with refractory neuropathic pain for the last seven years. He would like to complete the pain rehabilitation clinic program However, he would like to trial ketamine for a short-term relief until there is an opening. What counseling points would you share? So A, guidelines are based on large randomized control trials. B, pain scores may improve, but there is limited knowledge on ketamine sustained effects. C, no side effects were commonly seen with ketamine in published studies for chronic pain. Or D, ketamine is highly recommended in pain if it has persisted beyond six months.
All right, and I think everyone took the main point home here. Pain scores may improve with ketamine use, but there is limited knowledge on ketamine sustained effects. Looking at our other options, A, these guidelines were based on small randomized control studies. C, there were side effects, including nausea and the psychomimetic effects that were more significantly higher in the ketamine group compared to placebo. And finally, ketamine is not necessarily highly recommended if the pain has persisted beyond six months, even though this is the definition of chronic pain beyond six months. It's very case by case. So taking us back to the consensus guidelines for the safety precautions that they found throughout the available evidence and just based on other known facts of ketamine, they recommend avoiding ketamine use in individuals who have poorly controlled cardiovascular disease, pregnancy, or active psychosis. They also recommend avoiding use in severe hepatic disease and being cautious with moderate hepatic disease. Also being cautious with elevated intracranial pressure or elevated intraocular pressure and those with an active substance use. So my summary considerations for you today are that ketamine may be portrayed as the mainstay therapy and it has dramatically increased over time, but evidence does not really support its use. And we should be aware of this because if you just do a simple Google search of ketamine clinics for chronic pain, you'll see that there's a number of them with testimonials and these are at the fingertips of our patients. And this is what they're seeing. So we should be very aware of the evidence and be able to say more than just, oh, evidence doesn't really support it. We want to give them the actual facts that we've seen from the consensus guidelines and this meta-analysis. There's also no available evidence for outcomes with repeated use over longer periods of time for chronic pain. So how do we know if it's safe if we continue to use this? Because as we know, chronic pain does not easily go away or ever at all if it has been present for so many years. So we need to know that this is safe for our patients. And finally, it's important to educate patients on the limitations of therapy and lack of quality evidence, as I mentioned. So our next steps that I would recommend is developing meaningful data on the risk of long-term use with attention to comorbidities that may predispose patients to cardiovascular disease, liver conditions, or substance use. Additionally, it will be important to determine what constitutes an adequate response. Do we want to go with the greater than 30% like some studies looked at or greater than 50% reduction in pain scores like others? Or is there another magic number that we want to look at and then commit our patient to ongoing infusions if they're meeting that response? Additionally, design an empirically supported approach to selecting ketamine dose. As you saw in the consensus guidelines, they have a recommended bolus and infusion, but there is still a wide variety saying in ICU refractory cases, it could be safe all the way up to seven mg per kg per hour. So that's a wide range of doses. And it would be very important to be able to tell a practitioner, if you are going to trial this in your patient, this is at least a safe dose to start at. Finally, utilizing ketamine as part of a treatment plan that optimizes non-opioid medications, 
activity-based therapies, and behavioral approaches. Chronic pain management really is a multidisciplinary area where we need multiple people helping with this chronic pain management. There's really not one cure-all. As you saw in a lot of these cases, patients have trialed so many different non-pharmacological therapies and the common duloxetine, gabapentin, opioids, et cetera. So we really need to take these and if you are going to use ketamine, potentially maybe as a bridge short-term therapy in your patients, also make sure that they are getting those activity-based therapies and behavioral approaches as well. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.